loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today's a special edition of Good Grief. For the first time in the six years I've been hosting the show, we have a live audience at Mission Hospice and Home Care in San Mateo, California. We're here as part of the Reimagine End of Life Festival. The festival offers an opportunity to explore death and celebrate life at more than 250 events across the San Francisco Bay Area. It's a community-driven initiative sparked by Reimagine, a new nonprofit that believes by facing death, we begin to live more fully. You can go to letsimagine.org to learn more about the San Francisco and the New York festivals and to find out how you can support their work. The festival organizers have asked each event host to read this intention. Why are we here in this space right now? We're here to create brave space. We're here to explore big questions with a shared spirit of curiosity, humility, and empathy. We're here in community. None of us is alone. Together we can help and inspire one another to engage in meaningful conversations about living and dying well. We're here to reimagine end of life, and, and I'm gonna personally add end grief, to envision a world in which we are all able to reflect on why we're here, to prepare for a time when we won't be and to live fully right up until the end, we're here. It's really appropriate that I'm interviewing the son of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross after that introduction, because for me, she did more than any other person in the last 50 years to break that conversation open. And so Ken, I really wanna welcome you and I wanna tell people a little bit about you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Ken grew up surrounded by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's work as a pioneering legend in hospice, bereavement, and palliative care education in the United States. She wrote 23 books in 36 languages about death and dying. Her first book on death and dying originally described the famous five stages of grief and is now being printed in its 50th year edition, which you just gave me a copy of. It's currently available in 27 languages. Ken Ross has served as president of the board at the Elizabeth, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Foundation, and he's also the author of Real Taste of Life, a journal which he wrote with his mother, and Tea with Elizabeth, and is also a public speaker. Along with taking a fresh look at the work of his mother, we'll be talking about how his unusual and early exposure to her perspectives on death, dying, and grief has influenced his own life. You can find out more about the work of the foundation and Ken himself at ekrfoundation.org. Welcome, Ken. Thank you, Cheryl. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's a pleasure to be in the same room with you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and with these lovely people that are that are with us. Exactly. Yeah. Thanks to all of you. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's just start. I believe most, if not all, people who listen to my show have run across your mom's name at some point or another. 
but um, I wonder if you could just say a little bit of about how you see her development into this big powerhouse uh, international voice for the dying originally, mm -hmm. and and uh, kind of your perspective on that early time now that it's 50 years later. Well, I think my mom was always the defender of the underdog, even when she was a young schoolgirl. She used to beat up the school bully if he picked on people. <laughs> and my mother was out in the forest, always like picking up stray animals that had got injured. So she was always a bit of a healer and always taking in people and animals and any, any entity life form that needed help. So it was always in her being. And then, uh, as, as you may know from reading her biography, after World War II, she did relief work for two years, rebuilding Europe. Mm -hmm. And they had no money to send her out traveling around Europe. So she hitchhiked, you know, which was pretty crazy for a little Swiss teenage girl. And I think my mother just had absolutely no fear. And she was just, you know, determined to always help people. And so when she came to America, she was very shocked at the American system for dealing with death, which was not to deal with it. So, you know, it made her angry, you know, my mother did not like the word no. And so <laughs> when people told her, no, you cannot talk to any dying people, she said nonsense. <laughs> I don't need your permission. I was just trying to be polite, but I'm happy to do it without permission and not being polite. So, so my mother, you know, starting about 1965, she started having these little seminars, which went on for about four years. And they got bigger and bigger. After two years, uh, they became accredited by the school. Um, but strangely, over the four years of these classes, if you can imagine, only two doctors from her hospital ever came to one of her classes. Wow. She, she eventually had other doctors come, but only two doctors from her actual hospital would show up. You know, so the doctors really didn't like her, but the nurses loved her because, you know, no one was giving them a voice and information on how to deal with these young people. So, you know, it was a bit of a struggle and she struggled her entire life. It was just her fate. Mm. I don't know if you know, but her house was burned down not once, but twice. Oh my, You I know, know once in California and once in Virginia. Of so. course, that touches our hearts here in California oh, yeah, today imagine, because right. there's fires going on all over the state right mm -hmm. this minute today. Exactly. So she was always controversial and, you know, she really paid a heavy price for it, but nothing would stop or slow her down. Even her stroke, she just kept on going. Kept on going. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm I'm aware. Uh, I hadn't known about her uh, uh, going to Auschwitz and and rebuilding uh, after the war and that part of her history. But um, it's interesting that many guests that I have on the show, there's this breadcrumb path uh, that goes way way back mm -hmm. um, to often an early exposure in some way right. to death and dying. And that's a big exposure. And of course, changed psychology a lot, you know, because many people who had to flee then then became healers of one kind or right. another. Yeah, like Viktor Frankl. Yeah, Viktor Frankl mm -hmm. is, a, is a perfect example. So um, it's been interesting to put her in that category for myself, you know, which I, which I wasn't aware of. And I guess maybe it takes, do you think it takes that kind of sort of fierceness, like I don't care what you think, to, to um, populate a really new idea? I, I think uh, it does. I mean, you know, my mother had a lot of blowback and, you know, her entire life, and she still does. I mean, now people just totally attack my mother, you know, 14, 15 years after she passed, they're still at it, attacking her, saying, oh, she's wrong. And, 
she didn't go far enough. She went too far. Her stages are garbage, whatever it is, <laughs> you know, and I'm sure she's up there, you know, thumbing her nose at these people. <laughs> well, that's a good jumping off because uh, I reread On Grief and Grieving for today's interview. I'm sure I read it way back, but uh, didn't recall it specifically. So I reread it, which was fascinating because a lot of the ideas that that um, I'm familiar with in current grief thought are actually in there. And uh, there's a specific uh, little paragraph I'm gonna read because um, a lot of what professionals like me give her a hard time for, not me, but other professionals, oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, is this idea of stages because right. of course, uh, it doesn't quite go in line, right? right? Mm -hmm. But she herself said, grief is not just a series of events, stages, or time timelines. Our society places enormous pressure on us to get over loss, to get through the grief. But how long do you grieve for a husband of 50 years, a teenager killed in a car accident, a four-year-old child, a year, five years, forever? The loss happens in time, but its aftermath lasts a lifetime. Right. And unfortunately, so, especially in America, we have this thing of like, you know, we want it done now. So we people actually call the foundation and they say, you know, my friend's son died. I'd like to send her to a spa so she gets over this. Like, uh, you know, it, you know, it doesn't work that way. You can't just like, you know, hurry up the process and send them to a spa. And, you know, it's it happens all over the world. But in America in particular, people want this timeline. Well, how long is it going to take? Like, I'd like a date. So like, you know, chop, I, don't chop. Have, I don't have to deal with their grief anymore. You know, it's, it's yeah. really unfortunate. And I think um, I want to ask you if you have a clear understanding of why she actually did choose the word stages, because yeah. it kind of lends itself to feeling like things are going to go in order, right. you know, which she didn't believe, obviously. Right. right. Um, and you have to one keep in mind that she was a Swiss person writing in English, and she'd only been in this country for less than ten years, so her grasp of English was limited to some degree. And then, you know, she said, you can use the word phases or anything you want, but I have to write a book and I have to choose a word. So I can't keep using different words or they won't know what I'm talking about. So I just chose that particular word, you know, as an example of what they are. But she said, obviously, I, I regret that people interpreted this way. It's not what I meant to say. Um, and... I brought the book, so you don't think I made this up. This is the actual book. I'm showing the audience members here. This <laughs> On death and dying, book. he's, he's and, lifting and up. Look at the chart in the book. How many stages do you see? Uh, stages, phases. Yeah. There's 10. <laughs> 10. Right? There's 10. So this is in the actual book. So my mother talks about things like preparatory grief, partial denial, hope. This is in the book. There's a whole, whole chapter and on hope, but... Nobody ever mentions it. All the supposed experts on the stages who blast the stages, I'm like, well, I don't mind if you critique them or don't like them, but at least use facts. And in the book, she talks about 10 stages. Do you know, and also, I most people, maybe some counselors would argue, but most people who've experienced grief, those, what she called stages, which I would call maybe experiences right. or... A phenomenon, mm -hmm. maybe, uh, are familiar. Right. Psychological oh, yeah. responses. I, I, just recently, you know, I was uh, thinking about my wife who died. She died in 1995. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, I can't believe she's dead. 
you know, there's still a place that every once in a while goes, how could that be, right? Oh, That's yeah. denial or, you know, right. uh, all of those things occasionally happen, just not as intensely. So I've, I feel privileged to be able to at least clarify it for my, my listeners, mm -hmm. that it doesn't mean go in order and it doesn't mean uh, that there aren't a whole bunch of other things that are part of it. And exactly. you know, it doesn't mean any of that. It's just kind of phenomenon. Right, and acceptance doesn't mean you're fine with it. It just means you're at a place where you can continue to move on with your life and it doesn't weigh you down in a certain fashion. So acceptance, again, is not, Everything's great. I'm 100%. It just means, okay, I'm ready to deal with it in a healthy fashion. I can examine it from a little distance and move forward. But it doesn't yeah. mean, you know, I'm, my cat died five, six years ago. I'm so sad about it. But, you know, I'm in yep. an acceptance that, okay, it's gone. The truth it's, is the yeah. truth. Yeah. I can. So, right. <laughs> you know, I get it. So, right. Yeah. The other thing is she originally came up with that um, working with people who were dying. Mm -hmm. To me, that is a, a grief experience, sure, but it has a definite end point. Right. So it, it, you are headed towards something. Mm -hmm. uh, so I can imagine that it did feel like there was a, a kind of, um, the people I work with who are ill, for instance, they may be more closely would follow that progression towards, okay, I get it, I'm gonna die, or, right. you know. And then, uh, and then when you're talking about bargaining, for example, in the book, bargaining, you know, you're bargaining with God saying, hey, you know, I really wanna see my daughter's wedding. God, if you just let me live a few more months, then I'll accept my death, you know. And that's obviously different than, you know, if you're dealing with someone else's death where there's not a timeline. For sure. I'm going to move this closer to you because they're telling me that they're not speak up. They're not <laughs> hearing everything you're saying, and I want them to. Okay. Um, so then there's little you. <laughs> <laughs> um, Should I sit back on the couch as a psychoanalyst here? <laughs> well, no, I'm just fascinated because nearly everyone I know, I mean, my children grew up exposed to death because my wife was dying um, and that has influenced them very much in their lives i have to say good and bad obviously this show is about that it doesn't all end up terrible even when someone in your life dies when you're young it, it all depends on how that gets handled and everything but you didn't grow up with one particular person in your family dying you grew up immersed in illness, death, and dying. <laughs> Sounds and so romantic when you say that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, and that's a very unusual experience. I think it, you'd agree. It, it is, but when you grow up in it, then that's your norm. So, you know, I both my parents were doctors. So my father also, all his patients were dead or dying. And he was bringing home brain samples. So he'd leave one, two, three brains in the house in the kitchen where we're eating or we'd be having dinner and he'd say oh kenneth i forgot my brains in the trunk can you go get my brains <laughs> and our house guests would be a little confused like wow, yeah, so how does that work <laughs> yeah exactly so so it was just the norm it was normal you know in third grade and show and tell i brought human brains in you know they were, they were a little shocked <laughs> you know people came up to me for i think five years telling me how they had nightmares about it so i traumatized their entire youth 
And yet, and yet, what I would say is, for instance, I work a lot with grief, obviously, as a counselor. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 biggest problem uh, for adults when they've lost a parent young, let's say, is things like nobody talked about it. Uh, nobody was honest with me. No one mentioned her again after she died. It's not actually the loss as much as the shut door. Right, because they're not dealing with their own grief. So certainly they can't they can't, to somebody they else. can't help, right? Mm-hmm. And so then it's a matter of kind of going back and getting it done. Uh, I rarely have someone with a childhood loss who people talked openly about it and and um, they feel very incomplete as an adult. Right. My, my parents sadness, talked about it too much. <laughs> so, yeah. Because I, every night at the dinner table, you know, they were talking about death or the latest case or this child's dying and that patient had this terrible disease. And, you know, my sister and I were quite, you know, <laughs> quite freaked out about any little bump we had. Or <laughs> so, <laughs> You got a little paranoid. Everything leads to death. Everything. <laughs> so. No, one of my children was recently, uh, she was two and a half when my wife died and I got into this work and all of that. She's 26 now. Mm-hmm. And she recently said to someone else, but I was in the room. They just talked about it ad nauseum. Exactly. <laughs> I can relate to that. <laughs> and, I, and I wasn't really aware how much uh, I talked about death and grief mm-hmm. at home. Right. But of course, it's so integrated into my way of thinking, of course I would, Mm -hmm. right? So one negative effect of that is uh, being terribly fearful that the bump is cancer or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Are there other effects Mm -hmm. from that that you can see in your life, you know, from growing up in that kind of, um, in that conversation with her? Yeah, I think it gave me a perspective that I wasn't looking forward so much as I was looking backwards because everything to me, is done from this viewpoint of, okay, I'm, I'm say I'm in the last day of my life. So I'm always looking backwards at my life, not forward to my death, but backwards from my death. So I go, well, how do I want to fill up this beautiful journal of life? Because I'm looking down a dark tunnel and I don't know if, you know, the train's going to hit me tomorrow, in a week, a month, a year, mm. 10 years, you know, and I've mm. had some near death experiences, had a heart attack on an airplane, not died, a good place to have a Almost died, mountain climbing, <laughs> you know, different things. And so I'm always looking backwards at life saying, okay, last day of my life, I want to make sure I really fill up this life very much and do amazing things and challenge my fears. And so that's my viewpoint is always looking backwards, not forward towards the death, but backwards from the last day. So that's kind of an interesting perspective. For sure. So people's like, my God, you're always busy. I'm like, well, yeah, I don't want to waste my time because <laughs> I don't know when the end is coming. And, you know, for me, it's great because I don't fear death because like I only fear things I can control. So my fear is like, I'll maybe waste my life. Uh, so I don't want to fear death because I have no control over that. Uh-huh. But the things I can control, those are things I fear. And life, I have some control over. And so I really want to fill it up crazy like you know maybe i'll kill myself trying to live but, but, <laughs> yeah, but that's re- worth it huh? yeah, that's, that's totally worth it but that was kind of my choice so yeah my fears are like the things i can control uh-huh, so uh-huh. so that's kind of I an interesting that. perspective that's different i i went in you're you're a photographer which i didn't uh mention in your bio mm-hmm. but um and you're also um it was interesting to learn that you've 
you have a goal of going to 106 countries? 101. 101 countries. Not and I'm going to stop. But and, <laughs> and you're at 100, aren't you? I'm at 100, you? so. Well, that's amazing. It's, it's not bad. <laughs> that's pretty good. Uh, and I went on your Instagram. I wanted to see, you know, kind of what your eye is. I would, I would call your photographs vivid. Because that's how I see life, right? It's, it's yeah. very exciting. It's colorful. It's graphic. Kind of unusual. It's a little abstract, you know. My, my, when I was a kid, I couldn't, I had no thoughts about death so much, but I could not figure out life. Because life seemed to me more mysterious than death. Death, I heard all about. But life is like, <laughs> God, I, how, what do you, how do you decide what you're going to do with your life? It's such a big decision. How can you just choose one career in this one life you have? Like maybe I'll come back a hundred times, but I'm Ken Ross living at this time of history and I have all these opportunities where I can put down a credit card, get in a plane. And so like, I'm always mystified by like life. That's, that's the big mystery. Death is like, okay, well, it'll take care of itself. Like <laughs> there's nothing I'm going to do that's going to change <laughs> death at all or what happens after death if I go to heaven or if I come back a hundred times, that's out of my hands. But this life, that's the thing I'm still trying to figure out. And, and, um, has that gotten sort of it that sounds in process to me oh yeah it's awesome uh and and i wonder how your perspective on that has changed over time like a nine-year-old saying i don't get life is not like whatever age you are now 59 59 it's not like 59 is it? sometimes of it is i'm so bit of a child sometimes <laughs> ask my friends yeah but it uh you know i I'll, I'll say to my clients uh, that grief is a creative process mm -hmm. um, by its nature, so no one knows how to do it. Right, because <laughs> people absorb life in different ways. So some people, you know, music therapy might work or drawing therapy or, you know, some people who've had losses help other people deal with their losses. You know, there's many, many ways. There's not just one path to deal with grief. So when you're, I know that you were the main, or at least one of the main uh, caregivers mm -hmm. for your mom uh, for a long, long time. Yes, and I, I like I, lifetimes. Yeah, I'm sure it did. <laughs> I've been there, I understand. Yes. Um, how did that influence your perspective on life, uh, her work, your relationship to her? Because you know, I get this picture of your childhood, like, if you wanted to see her, you better go to Mozambique. Very much. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, too. <laughs> and so that's a, you know, that's a kind of running after to find your mother, mm -hmm. right? right. Uh, it, it sounds as if she gave you a tremendous amount of love when you could catch her. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but still, that's you know, a very unusual experience too. Yeah, it was challenging. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine um, little kids like their main main people to be kind of around them. Right. right. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, the, way, the way it changed me is that um, I grew up in a bubble. I was definitely spoiled some degree because my mother put no parameters on me. <clears throat> I had no rules growing up. So that was, it seemed normal, but apparently that's not normal for <laughs> a lot of kids. You know, I could go out till three in the morning. I could you know, watch Johnny Carson in third grade, I can do anything. <clears throat> and same thing when I was adult, there's no parameters. Like, yeah, do whatever you want, live your life, live your dream. Go and for so, it. Yeah, so I became a photographer because, you know, I was very quiet. 
very shy. And I thought, oh, being a photographer, I can just hide behind my camera and take pictures and I don't have to interface with the world verbally. And so then taking care of my mother, it was a whole different experience because I hadn't really been a business person. And my mother had 86 publishers around the world. And she had press contacting us every week, you know, Time Magazine's calling, Newsweek, Vanity Fair. And so I had to deal with the press and I had to deal with business things I didn't understand. And it was endless lawsuits because people were always trying to use my mother and abuse her and had to deal with public relations. And I had to deal with people showing up from around the world every day. And I had no idea who they were. And they said, oh, your mother promised me her rugs, her car. My mother disappears one day. You know, so it's a whole different experience of life. (laughs) A crazy chapter. It it reminds me of something I read in the chapter you wrote for Tea with Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. Uh, You said, sometimes I felt like the beleaguered assistant to a temperamental rock star. (laughs) (laughs) She would always know the one task I might not have finished. Oh, yeah, yeah. (sighs) I'd come in and she'd give me a list of like 17, 18, 19 things. And the next day I'd come back or two or three days later. And she'd only ask me about the one thing I didn't get done on that list. It was like unbelievable. Her antenna were up and she just sensed like where to zing her son. <laughs> I, may, I might be projecting this a little bit, but, uh, but my wife was a very um, impassioned kind of person, lots of energy. Mm-hmm. And as her body went down, there were certain things she got more controlling about. Mm-hmm. Laundry is the, is the <laughs> thing that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. You know, it had to be done just this way right. because she'd lost control over going out there and doing what she would usually have been doing, you right. know. And um, your mom seems to have been a particularly dynamic person. And it doesn't sound like her brain slowed down, just her body. Right. And that was frustrating <laughs> because she was an overachiever. So if you're an overachiever, you want everyone else to be an overachiever to kind of compensate for what you can't do. So she had a whole lot of things for me to do every week. And, and she was frustrated too because she didn't care about business. But as her son, you know, one day I was going to inherit all her things along with my sister. And I wanted to inherit a smoothly operating machine versus chaos. And my mother didn't care about that stuff. So, so you I had say, to run against her a little bit. Yeah, I'm like, sometimes. mom, I got to go home and take care of this paperwork. Ah, paperwork. That's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I want some tea and chocolate. You know? <laughs> I'm like, mom, like, it's very important documents I have to. Ah. <laughs> Do you feel that, uh, you know, she could no longer run around, right? Mm-hmm. And you were there with her right. a good share of the time. Do you feel like you get got to settle into the two of you being together in a different way? Um, what was it like? Because you, then you're spending time. She's not running off to the next workshop or, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and I'm curious. That might have been what easier, that was. yeah. <laughs> for her especially. Oh, yes. For both of us. <laughs> you know, my mother didn't like being controlled, obviously. She's very independent. So it took me quite a while to kind of develop a system where, I could guide her, but, you know, give her the space at the same time, not feel like she's being micromanaged. So it was a balancing act. You know, every time I saw her to guide her to sign certain things or to do certain things, contact certain people, whatever it was, because, you know, she's doing the PR, but I'm guiding her. And, you know, sometimes she's say, ah, you're too much like your father. <laughs> I say, thank you. Such, a, such an accusation when, yes, exactly. when there's been divorce. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, no, they had, they had a great relationship afterwards, too. 
But, uh-huh. um, yeah, definitely. I understood my father a lot more than <laughs> <laughs> I had before that point. So. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, um, I can, I can, I can sort of imagine that from my own vantage point. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite stories I heard while she was ill, because stories got around, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes word of mouth, but sometimes in the in publicity or something, was that she was very, very angry for a period of time. Mm-hmm. And um, everyone was giving her a hard time, like, you're the, you're the dying expert. What's right. going on? Exactly. And that she said, you think I don't have to do the stages? Exactly. Or something yeah. of that sort. I mean, it's okay for everyone else to do it, but when I have to go through the stages, that's not allowed. You give allowed. me a hard yeah. time. It's not acceptable. And that interested me, too, in the, in the grief book because she was talking about how that period of time was maybe the first time that she got to assimilate her own personal losses right um two miscarriages before you four miscarriages Mm -hmm. before you i mean Mm -hmm. that's crushing especially at that time when people didn't talk about it right it would be more crushing Mm -hmm. uh her experiences with all the death in europe um all the people that she sat with while they were getting ready to die and so I could imagine that was a very to have that hit you all at once because you can't get up and move and distract yourself uh must have been pretty intense it was if you go on YouTube there's an interview with um it's the last interview my mom did with Oprah and she's talking to Oprah about her anger you know and Oprah saying, did you go through the stages? She goes, just anger, 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 anger. <laughs> <laughs> okay, got it, Elizabeth. <laughs> We're staying with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I want to think about it some more. Oh. <laughs> and what about for you after she after she died? You know, you've been like exposed to not just dying people, but the idea that we should be open with our grief, you know, somewhere, mm-hmm. you know, that we that we need to feel it and and um, honor it, I guess. Do you think being exposed to those ideas helped you in grief? I think it did. I mean, I, I don't feel like I went through the stages. Not, not that I'm saying there's no stages or five <laughs> stages or whatever, but you know, I just thought, okay, you know, my mom was ready to go. <clears throat> she said something very interesting. You know, for nine years, she's saying, Kenneth, don't make plans next week. I'm going to die, you know. <laughs> For nine years. Mom, that's called projection. Okay. <laughs> Can we get you a psychology book? <laughs> ah. So, but about three weeks before she died, she said, Kenneth, I don't want to die. I'm like, what? What do you, what do you mean by that? And she just changed the topic. That's all she said. And then a few weeks later, she died. Mm-hmm. And I thought about it for years. And I thought, ah, that's exactly what she teaches. She goes, when you release, you know, whatever it is, your, you know, your anger, your frustration, whatever lesson you're meant to learn, when you learn all your lessons, then you're allowed to graduate, which is my mother's word for death. So when my mother finally let go of her anger after nine years, three weeks later, she was gone. Mm. So I like, mm. ah, she learned a lesson. That's exactly what she taught. Uh-huh. <laughs> she was right. <laughs> and so then having a way to, I know that um, feeling some sense of of uh like there were no problems when with my wife when she died Mm -hmm. if you know what i mean Mm -hmm. uh everything was good Mm -hmm. and um readiness had happened after Mm -hmm. all those years 
And I do think that helped me a great deal. Oh yeah, for me having nine years, I mean, you know, a lot of time we to had process. roughly the same amount yeah, of time. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's great. I mean, you know, I feel terrible for people who have sudden losses. That that's hard. But when you have nine years, you're like, okay, well. <laughs> I've processed it as much as I'm going to process it. So <laughs> we've kind of said I love you for the last time, like yeah. about a, mil a million times. Right. Exactly. right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah. Like but there's something very issue. current with that too, isn't there? Uh, I can imagine if she kept thinking she was going to die, she's going to die, she's going to die. Uh, it, there's a there's a kind of presence in that, uh, at least in my experience, there was where in the relationship you do whatever it is that. You know, you can't be wasting time like with putting things on the back burner or something. And that's how I feel about all of life. You just don't wait. Just do it now. I mean, you know, just go out there and take chances and be a little crazy and do your thing. Like, challenge your fears, whatever it is. Like, just Can I ask <clears throat> you what a little crazy is for you? What's a little crazy? <laughs> um, you know, someone called me once and said, oh, are you going to the show in Paris? Uh, it starts tomorrow. I go, no, but I hung up the phone. I bought a ticket. Like I was on the plane that afternoon, you know, or I buy a plane ticket to Chile for two weeks and I have no plans. I just had a one-way ticket and I just go and see what happens. And so you kind of follow your intuitive mm -hmm. sense of what's right at the moment. I, just, you yes? know, I like buying one-way plane tickets to places Wherever. around the world and having no plan. <clears throat> I don't study a book. I don't know anything. I just have the first night hotel and after that, it's like two or three weeks of just, let's see what happens. So, and it all works out great. So How fantastic. That would be frightening <laughs> to some people, but I, I like it. Yeah, well, I had children instead. <laughs> <laughs> that to me is a lot tougher. <laughs> I've, been, I've engaged in human adventure right, for exactly. the past 39 years. <laughs> Children are the big unknown. <laughs> yes, they Roll the are. dice. Naughty nice. But, you know, that, uh, that idea of, um, so I have the idea for myself, once you face death, how do you convince yourself that something else that's a little scary is a, really a big deal, mm -hmm. right? Uh, I, it comes up in my mind, such and such is a big deal, but then I go, no, it's not. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I hear that in what you're saying. Like, yeah, in my death, it's no be, big deal. Like, but you know, I maybe fear other people's deaths, people that I'm close to. That you know, that I wouldn't say I'm afraid of it, but that is certainly much harder than my own death. My own death is no big deal. Yeah. <laughs> no, I I think I'm uh, I've lost many people. Mm -hmm. Right. Probably you have too since yeah. since uh, the biggie or whatever. Yeah. In the last two or three and, years, I've lost over fifteen friends. Yeah, and and there's a sense of maybe. I want to say a sense of dread of the pain that will come, mm -hmm. but I never feel like I can't do it. Right. Uh, it feels doable. Mm -hmm. is, I mean, is that I, familiar to you? Yeah, I want a obviously a smooth and painless death as we all do. And But uh, you know, I, I had a heart attack I, I mentioned. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so I'm laying on the ground thinking I'm going to die any second in Mexico in a little town. <clears throat> my only thought, this was back when my mom was alive, my only thought was, oh, my God, my poor sister has to deal with my mom's shit. Oh my <laughs> <laughs> That's the only thought I had. <clears throat> so that is like the acid test. <laughs> like, poor Barbara. Like, you know, so, so that, I think, is like. That's, why, that's yeah. why you didn't go there. Huh? I, well, I, I know, you know, if you, if you 
you're not scared to death at that point, then like, you're good to go. <laughs> so, For sure. And, that, mm -hmm. that must have been quite an experience, though, to be up. I always think when I get on a plane, uh, not about myself in particular. Heart stuff is not exactly my family's thing, other mm -hmm. things. Um, but, I, but I'm thinking, this is a, a really hard place if something should happen. Right, well, <laughs> but I, apparently airplane, doable. I travel a lot, so I've been in one had a heart attack on an airplane, been in one fire on an airplane, two near misses, and three emergency landings. Still, a hundred percent love to fly. A hundred and ten percent does not bother me. I don't think about it. But you know, someone who's had that many experiences, seven different experiences, might be a little hesitant. I'm like, no, no, no. That's no, not I, my fate. My, one of my daughters <laughs> and her husband are, are scared, terribly scared, and they've never had anything happen. Right, so it's <laughs> so, all perspective. It's all perspective. <laughs> yeah, and and you couldn't have had the like you have if you couldn't get on a plane, could you? Exactly. So so uh, sometimes I think the force of what we must do in our lives overcomes, in some sense, certain fears. Mm -hmm. Do you think? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's not, not going to slow me down one bit. So. <laughs> and so now you. Uh, you know, you ha you've had a career as a photographer, that's your thing. Mm -hmm. um, but then you get involved in a foundation for your mom. Um, I wanna know how that came about because uh, you could have said, whew, thank goodness, I'm done with all that, well, right? That's, that's what I thought. That's exactly <laughs> what I thought. Like, oh, wow, I get to be my bohemian photographer self again. <laughs> and then two days after my mom died, a woman showed up from India she said, oh, I've flown here from India to meet your mother. And I'm, I'm like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> you just missed You're her. You're a little late. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I took her to the room where my mom died. And I showed her some things. I let her touch my mom's clothing. Talked to her. Gave her some tapes and books and things. And she said, okay, well, I think I have enough, you know, enough things here to influence me and, and inspire me to go start the hospice anyway. So thank you very much. I really appreciate what you've done. I thought, you know what? I have this beautiful entity here of my mother's spirit and her legacy and her teachings. I think, you know, I probably have to do something with this. I can't just mm -hmm. let it go into the wind. <clears throat> so I thought I'd start a foundation and I thought the foundation would do all the work and I could still be a photographer and I didn't realize how foundations work. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, they don't like work I, quite like that. Yeah, like I said, I didn't have, have much business experience. So that's <laughs> still a fantasy. <laughs> so started a foundation went through a couple boards they weren't exactly what i was looking for and eventually i got frustrated with the foundation and the board and so i let somebody else uh, take over and run it for a couple of years <clears throat> and then she dropped out and i became president again last year and now i feel like i've had much more experience taking a look at you know the way she ran the board other boards have been reading doing my homework and so now i feel like i'm better equipped so just in the last year and a half, we've started new groups in Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Mexico, India, and we're starting a group in Guatemala very soon. So that's just in the last year and a half. We've worked with the Vatican, worked with the uh, National Cancer Institute of Brazil. Today, I think they're meeting with the uh, Legislative Council of Rio de Janeiro to change laws in Brazil. Mm. So real, a lot of things are happening. So it's very exciting. And uh, just for people who maybe won't go look it up, mm -hmm. could you talk about the mission of the, I mean, obviously, uh, it, your foundation is inspired by your mother and her work. Right. 
but specifically, what is your goal for all these projects around the world that are happening just to get her work out or other things too? Well, as you can imagine, around the world, a lot of people are much further behind than they are in the United States or in Western Europe. <clears throat> so they don't have access to hospice or palliative care or grief training or grief counselors. So we want to go out and, you know, spread my mother's word as if it was United States, 1969. So, you know, we're starting hospices in South America, starting palliative care, palliative care training, training grief counselors, doing everything my mother was doing, but in different cultures that don't have this work available, have access to it. So, you know, there's a lot of work to be done around the world. <clears throat> And some of it could be done better in the United States as well. So we're well, working indeed. here too. And one thing <laughs> we'd like aware. to address in the United States is like, you know, hospice generally is directed towards, you know, the white population, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so, or English speaking population. So other cultures speak different languages, different beliefs, different customs. They don't subscribe to the same way that, you know, hospice is done in this country. <clears throat> so we get calls you know, from Texas, from Hispanic people saying, hey, there's nothing in Spanish yeah. and we don't have any help. There's no hospices where Spanish is the central language. <clears throat> they don't understand our beliefs, what we're doing, our customs. You know, we need help, mm -hmm. you know? So there's a lot of different communities and states that are not being addressed that we feel that the foundation could possibly help because my mother was always looking at these minority populations. You know, one thing I think I, I, I want to admire about your mom is that she let you become yourself, mm -hmm. right? No, yeah, she yeah. did. <laughs> For better you or know, worse. <laughs> that that uh, you didn't go into the work she did or, you know, you, you took what you were exposed mm -hmm. to and you made yourself out of it, mm -hmm. wouldn't you say? So then she dies and you end up I know you do a lot of work for the foundation and go all over the place and speak. You end up carrying on her work. That's a very interesting um, kind of circle. circle. Yes. yes. <laughs> the wheel of life. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. And it sounds as if uh, you didn't necessarily feel pressured to do that, but rather it needed to be done. You felt some inspiration towards yeah. that. You sound inspired about it. I feel it. a responsibility because I, I really feel like I see when people, you know, are exposed to my mother's work, it completely changes their lives. Mm -hmm. And it just so happens, I have some notes here that I've gotten in the last week from around the world, from Brazil, Spain, Mexico. Uh, so here's a note from Argentina. Uh, Elizabeth was more than a poet. She was, you know, everything to us. I would like to see more poetry in medicine today. Unfortunately, my country does not have much romanticism in medicine. Mm -hmm. You know, so this is just one letter I got in last week. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Ken. I love your mother's legacy. I've read all her books. I love her with all my heart. Uh, Dr. Elizabeth has been my great inspiration to dedicate myself to the accomplishments of people in mourning for the last 10 years. Um, I contribute my personal growth to the understanding of her great legacy of her books by everything that's happened to me since the loss of my son. So these are just notes I've gotten just in the last week. So you can imagine how important it is for me to get these books into the hands of different common people, not you know, medical societies, but the common people find so much inspiration and hope and dig their ways out of the depth when they and are exposed to my mother's work. 
It really makes a huge change in their lives. Well, we were talking before we went on air about um, my particular intersection with your mom, which is that one of her students, Stephen Levine, was one of my teachers. Right. And the fact that um, they commented on her poetry, mm -hmm. um, Stephen was such a poet. And I can imagine that their time together um, helped him blossom that. Oh yeah. You know, mm -hmm. uh, and also uh, what I feel is a little bit um, under talked about, but was obvious in the grief book was her spiritual outlook. Mm -hmm. She was quite funny with that because <clears throat> um, the last couple of years of my mom's life, my mother had a picture of Jesus by her bed and people come and say, I, you know, Ken, I, I, your mother's not religious. I know she's not religious. Why does she have a picture of Jesus by her bed? I go, you have to ask her because <laughs> she answers, it's just incredible. Uh -huh. So they go back and I go, Elizabeth, you know, I was talking to Kenneth and he said, I should ask you about this picture of Jesus. And my mother would brighten up. She'd go, oh yeah, look, it's the sexy Jesus. You know, <laughs> I don't believe in the angry Jesus. There is no angry Jesus. There's only the beautiful, sexy Jesus. And that's the one I love. <clears throat> and she just found Jesus, a very inspirational figure, Teacher. if you will. Yeah. It had nothing to do with religion for my mother. It was just all about spirituality. It had nothing to do with Christianity or being a Catholic. It's just a beautiful teacher, beautiful spirit. And so mm -hmm. she was spiritual, but definitely not religious. And did that uh, did she did she manage to infuse that into you the spirituality? Well, spirituality, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I never went to church or synagogue or you know, I've gone to them culturally and Right. Crash Just weddings to... in 19 countries for photographs, but, <laughs> but, but more for photographs. You didn't photographs. tell them you were a photographer, they would have let you in. No, no, I did. I did. <laughs> oh, we're so honored you want to photograph our wedding. It's like, really? <laughs> it's, it's amazing. So. And, and of course, that was um, something, a because she would, she seemed to me to be slightly shy about going totally all the way into that in that book about right. grief. Well, you know, she got a lot of blowback about her life after death presentations and all this stuff. And people don't know it, but in on Death and Dying, 1969, she had a chapter about life after death. And both her best friend and the publisher begged her to take it out. And so reluctantly, she took it out. But even in the 60s, she was ready to talk about it. And she was kind of pushed not to do so. And then, so that's interesting because then Stephen comes along, his work I know intimately. So mm -hmm. I'm sure that there are people all over the world we could be talking about, but his is the work I know. He was completely out there with it. Right. Right. That was the heart of his work that we're spirits on this earth. Right. You know. Uh, we're not contained by the body and exactly which is my mother's belief and right. my mother did write books on it and her book on life after death is her biggest seller in german ah. so she did eventually talk about it but we don't talk about it as a central theme of the foundation because uh. we feel like other cultures are back in 1969 they're not ready to talk about this or maybe they are but we want to kind of focus more on this to get them started to get them started right yeah uh, the, the other thing that's, that stood out in the book 
you know, when you read a whole book, it's not just the one idea or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, she had so many thoughts. And I wonder, I'm asking this, I'm talking about this because of, I wonder how much it comes into the foundation. So many thoughts on the impact of different kinds of grief, on the impact of different feelings people might have in grief, you know, really a wide array of, in, of um, everything from did the person die from suicide or, uh, or accident or illness and uh, did you feel, uh, you know, sad or angry or good. It, it's just a very wide book, mm -hmm. covers mm -hmm. a lot. Right. And I wonder, um, you know, you're trying to get on death and dying out, but do people also come to you to kind of be exposed to what might happen in grief, what, what they might experience? Because I felt it was a very calming, if someone didn't know, if someone had a loss mm -hmm. and um, they were new to grief, uh, the style of that book was, was very calming and comforting because it just talked about so many different things that might happen. Right. Well, and yeah. keep in mind, we have, we have 23 books by my mother, and we have over 100 papers, and we have CDs, DVDs, we have YouTube, we have all sorts of things. So people do come to us and say, hey, this is what I'm experiencing. Where should I start? Where should I start? And so I say, oh, well, you should start with The Tunnel of the Light or, you know, or some other book or Life Lessons or... So I definitely... We kind of listen to what they're saying and try to direct them towards something. And then we also have my mother's former staff is still doing her workshops. Ah. And I know we have at least one person here who was helped by those workshops uh, in the audience today. And um, so the staff still does them, both in the United States and overseas. So that's also a direction we send people to in workshops. And that was a great legacy of my mother's. You know, I've, I, I'm thinking of this in a little in a little bit of a broad way that sometimes, uh, obviously, there's an evolution in the world. You know, an idea happens and it keeps evolving and changing. But sometimes we leave behind a little too much. <laughs> if that makes sense. You know, her work is still extremely relevant. That's right. what I got when I read that book. That mm -hmm. that I could I could give it to someone right now, who was grieving, and they would get a lot out of it. Right. And, and yet there's sort of always the newer book or the, you know, That's the, the latest thought on the latest thought, <laughs> but, but what it comes down to is uh, opening up uh, the idea that grief is okay, the right? Discussion. Let's, have, let's have the discussion, right? So. Right. What can we do to, to continue to make that more known to more and more people? Right. And that's what I kind of hear in what you're right. saying. It's normalizing the idea that people grieve and it's totally normal and and the people die right they, they kind of go together exactly yeah that, <laughs> yeah that, you know pe people say to me oh you know your mother's work was great but people die differently now because people are living longer i go that's exactly the word she used 50 years ago it's those words are in this book say <laughs> like technology is keeping people alive longer and and now so, you're telling me 50 years later oh well now it's different because technology i'm like no 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 that's exactly what she said 50 years ago Right. So, you know, yeah, yes, yeah, there are and, more ideas and different ideas, but. And there's, there's also <laughs> truth. Like uh, when my wife was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, she was expected to live six months. People now live 20 years with that. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to a particular illness, they might be right. right. But, but in the end. But in the <laughs> end, you know, yes. uh, 
So maybe we could make a rule, you and I could make a rule for the world, <laughs> that it's, it's, it's okay to object to something she taught if you actually read the book. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Based on real facts, I'm good with that. You're good with that. That's, well, because it's, it's I mean, I'm, I'm really enjoying our conversation, right? It, mm -hmm. it, th there's no conversation I like better than talking about these things. Exactly. And see, and we, it doesn't mean we're going to die, like just because we've talked about it. But, well, <clears throat> let's hope not. I mean, well, I mean, yeah. we're going to die, but <laughs> probably not today. We're, we're both going to die, but right. not because we talked about it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that, that, um, that idea that it's just really about talking about it. And some people are very good at um, making that, at opening that conversation. Right. Right. Well, this festival that this that today is a part of, um, it, that's the whole point, right? Exactly. Uh, talk about it as many ways as you can, as many times as you can. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not a new idea. Some of us have been around doing that stuff for a while, right? Some of us have. And, and it's what's uh, very um, enjoyable to me about the festival is that it's very age diverse. Mm -hmm. And topic and, diverse too, right? And topic diverse mm -hmm. and race diverse. Depressing and conversations, a lot of fun in it, a lot of culture. A lot culture, of fun, lot which, of which really, what is what is death and grief without fun? Exactly. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't be okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I found my sense of humor uh, living with a dying person. Mm -hmm. I never had one before that. My mother never lost her sense of humor. <clears throat> Obviously, because oh, when yeah. you quote her, she sounds very funny. I've got a video of her two or three weeks before she died at a zoo feeding a giraffe right next to the sign says, do not feed the giraffe. <laughs> <laughs> what a character. Oh, yeah. And you inherited some of that. I hope so. <laughs> uh, well... I hope you'll let me know where you go in the world because I have this idea that um, you must have very unusual travel experiences. They are quite unusual. <laughs> you know, that uh, for one thing, I could imagine you maybe time to time end up actually talking about your mom with people in these other places, maybe. I do. Mm -hmm. And that that mm -hmm. is probably very rich. Yes, everywhere I go, people. Yeah, I mean, I was in an airport in... Uh... Slovenia and I opened up my camera bag and and my mom's book was at the top of the bag and the man in front of me said oh Elizabeth Kubler Ross I knew her I'm like of course he did I'm in Slovenia why wouldn't you know my mother <laughs> <laughs> oh Ken thank you so much for being here today it's thank been you. a delight a complete delight my pleasure and thank I you. hope people will go to ekrfoundation.org next week I'll have Katie Stifter we'll be talking about her book the funny thing about grief uh, which recounts her experience af after the sudden death of her husband. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.